let me say it the other way around, if the Lord connects with you. And so that is really my prayer uh, for today, is that we would experience the Lord uh, this special Christmas day. But I just want to open with a question, and that is, who is Jesus to you? I mean, I know this is a simple question, but, but who is Jesus to you? You know, for most of my life, uh, especially when I was in my, in my 20s, I think I probably would have answered that question by saying, uh, Jesus is God, uh, he's the Son of God, don't ask me too much more about that. Uh, you know, just don't press me. Uh, if you were asking me uh, any sort of in-depth uh, discussion of that, I'd be like way inadequate because I just had no meaningful relationship with God. It, it, you know, I, it wasn't like I was angry with God. I, I, I just had no connection. And so, you know, a good idea for a Sunday morning for me growing up in the Southern Hemisphere would be connecting with God through nature. In other words, that would be surfing. Like as soon as the sun rose, you know, I'd be like out in the warm water of the Indian Ocean with big waves, uh, you know, surfing. Now, I would say that's connecting with God. But, uh, you know, you guys are just like way ahead of where I was. I mean, here you are in, in church uh, connecting with God in a much more meaningful, realistic way. It, you know, it was later in life, uh, in my late tw- 20s, when I actually experienced uh, the Lord. And uh, it was just really through my now wife, then girlfriend's doing, she invited me to church. And my expectation of what this was going to be like was I wanted to know more about Jesus. I wanted to know more about Christianity. And I thought I'd go to church and uh, I would hear a lot about Jesus. I mean, I didn't have a whole lot of expectation. I wasn't angry. I wasn't in a hurting place in my life. I just, like for whatever reason, God was drawing me. I wanted to know more about him. The last thing that I expected to have happen was that I'd have some sort of emotional response. I mean, I'd gone through military service, I'd finished college, I couldn't remember ever crying in my life. Uh, And then, you know, sort of totally unexpectedly, uh, somebody's praying for me, and I'm just bawling my eyes out. And after that uh, encounter, I'm like, why exactly was I crying? I, I, I don't even remember what the prayer was about. It wasn't like I was in pain. It wasn't like the person said something like hugely prophetic. It was just, I was crying. And, uh, you know, the thing that was so surprising to me was that somehow or other, the living God was connecting with me. And I was experiencing that. I was experiencing a surprising kind of a mysterious joy anticipation. There's more to this than I know. Uh, I'm kind of overwhelmed because God kind of knows me in a very personal way. And and uh, I've just been at church for you know, a few weeks at that point, And I was excited about what I was learning about God. But being emotional was about the last thing that I expected. Today, I want to talk about Jesus being the humble king. Now, I think there's two aspects of this that blow us away. One is the idea of Jesus as king. I think we limit that understanding about just how big his kingship is and what an unbelievable king he really is. I mean, I think we limit the powerfulness, the awesomeness, the majesticness of Jesus as God, as king. 
But I also think the other end of the spectrum is probably the area that catches us more by surprise. And that's the humility of Jesus. And the humility of Jesus allows us to relate to Jesus. There's a sense where we can connect or we get to know him and he gets to know us in a way that we don't fully anticipate with God being king. You know, there's just some ways that when we hear about people's humility or we get to have an insight into some person and their humility, that we get to know them in a way that's different. I mean, you know, there's been an amazing number of incredible presidents in this country. And we get to know them by the things that they've done. But we get to know them in a different way when we get to hear a more sort of a humble side uh, of them. And I don't know if you were fascinated by George Bush's funeral, but, but I was. And I, I enjoyed uh, just hearing some of the eulogies and just hearing some of the things that we wouldn't ordinarily have heard about him. But there was uh, one aspect which I thought was particularly uh, humorous uh, and endearing in this whole, you know, getting to know this president in a, in a more personal way. And that was uh, a little bit of his upbringing, where he came home one day as a soccer player, and he had scored three goals, and he, he ran into his mom, and he said, Mom, it was a great soccer game. I scored three goals. And his mom said, well, that's nice, George, but how did the team do? And it's like, Oh, okay. Uh, you know, it's like there's more to this than you might think. And then there was a speech apparently that uh, his speechwriters had written for him when he was president, and he was reviewing the speech. And uh, you know, a lot of the paragraphs are starting off with, you know, I have achieved, and I am, and and uh, he's going through it, and he's like erasing, you know, all the sort of um, great things that he did, and. There was one that kind of slipped in there, which he didn't really notice. And then he gave the speech and uh, his mom calls him up. George, you, you seem to be talking a lot about yourself. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's like when you hear the other side, this other aspect of people uh, and the humility, uh, it really uh, takes us by surprise. But, uh, you know, this, uh, there was another story um, where uh, the corporal was busy trying to get his troops to move some uh, heavy uh, logs that were in the way. And uh, he was just like berating these troops and telling him, move this log. And they were battling to move the log. And a gentleman came along on his horse and he uh, said to the corporal, like, why won't you help? And he said, well, I'm the corporal and I'm just giving orders. So the guy got off his horse and uh, helped his troops move this heavy log and got back on his horse. And he said, to, uh, he said to the corporal afterwards, next time uh, your troops need help, just call the commander-in-chief. That's me, George Washington. Now, you know, you just get a different picture of somebody that's kind of humble. You know, there's an insight there. Okay, so here's somebody that would just, you know, dirty his hands and get involved. And, you know, Abraham Lincoln as a president, you know, uh, is somebody many of you have, have read about and studied about. And, you know, he was just a, a different kind of a president. You know, he just had a, a humble heart. Uh, he did a lot of things that really we can relate to. But one of the things that he did, which was kind of interesting, is there was another lawyer like him that he really uh, battled a lot with, and his name was Stanton. And at one point, uh, you know, Stanton commented about uh, Abraham Lincoln. He said, he is just a long-armed ape. 
and he just had no, you know, he just didn't like Lincoln. Uh, then Lincoln gets uh, elected, and he realizes, you know, the best person for this particular position would be Stanton. And so he just deals with his humility, and he hires Stanton, because he knows he'll be the best for the job. And indeed, he does. He accepts a job, and he's doing the job. And then at some point, uh, some congressman had proposed a certain uh, rule or a certain idea, and uh, Abraham Lincoln agrees with it, and he tells Stanton to, to put it into action, and Stanton absolutely refuses. And so the report comes back uh, uh, to, to Lincoln, and it says, uh, Lincoln, uh, you know, uh, Congressman uh, I mean, Stanton said he refuses to do it. And uh, so Lincoln says, why? He said, because you're a fool. And Lincoln said, he said, I'm a fool? And the congressman said, no, actually, he repeated it. He said twice, you're a damn fool. To which uh, Lincoln said, well, you know, I must be a fool. Because like in 98% of the time, Stanton's right. <laughs> okay, it's like, well, all right. So you would just agree with somebody and just be humble and just acknowledge that maybe somebody else is right. You know, when we think of presidents or as kings, I mean, they're powerful people. Uh, we don't get to see the, the human side or the humility side of them. Nelson Mandela, after spending most of his uh, life, 27 years in prison, becomes the first black president of South Africa, and uh, he became pretty uh, world famous pretty quickly for all the good reasons. And uh, he was traveling to, in, in China, and he was in Shanghai, and uh, his assistant uh, knew of his ways, and he said to, uh, to Nelson Mandela, uh, he said, Nelson, listen, we're in China, and it's really not going to go down well if you make your bed. I know we're staying at the fancy hotel, and I know we're going to be here for a whole lot of nights, and I know it's your habit to always make your own bed. He said, but it's going to insult the locals if you do this. To which Nelson Mandela said, well, bring in the, the maidservant. And they brought the mates, and he sat her down and said, listen, it's really important to me that I make my own bed. I don't want to insult you. Well, I'll, I'll pay you, as a, but I'm making my own bed. I mean, just like, you know, you think, well, why? I mean, he's the president. He is flying around in fancy planes and staying in the best hotels. Why on earth would he make his own bed? Because he was just humble. He just like, that's one of the things he felt he needed to do, to just keep himself grounded as a humble person. I think when we get in connection with our humanity and when we get in connection with the humanity of Jesus, we get to experience a side that we don't often experience. Uh, it's the relatable side. It's the side that when somebody's a king or a president, we hear about their good deeds, we hear about their decrees, but we don't connect with them on a personal level. You know, I want to show this uh, little video clip that we've, we've been showing uh, as we built up to Christmas of Jesus' birth. And the big idea that I want us to connect with here is that Jesus was human. I mean, I know this is like we say it, and it's like when we read a book, and then you go to the movies, the movie always seems terrible because we've conjured up our own image of what this should look like. But when we think about Jesus being human, well, he's just like human. So let's just have a look at this video clip, if we can get that going.
You know, I don't know uh, whether you're new to faith or you've been a long-time believer, but one way or another, connecting with the humanity of Jesus is kind of difficult to do. Because on the one hand, we're holding intention, this is holy, almighty God. And then on the other hand, it's like, yeah, but he was born, you know, as a human, which meant he had like a natural upbringing and most of his life, he was pretty natural. I mean, you've got very little insights as to what Jesus did until he was 12. And he says something really smart. But other than that, you know, he just he's a normal average human being. And we battle with holding intention, somebody that's God, that's holy, that's all powerful, that's mighty with somebody that's humble and that relates to us and likes us and wants to live with us, and wants to invite us into his orbit and his life and the things that he's doing, and wants to take care of us. I mean, it's just, you know, so whichever side of the spectrum uh, we tend to move to, we hold this intention. And if we look at the Bible, uh, this tension is very, very real. I mean, in the Old Testament, we look at, say, Moses having an encounter with God, and, and, and Moses is like, you know, that the burning bush and God says to him, Moses, don't come any closer. You know, the ground that you're standing on is holy. And that's a wonderful image of the holiness and the awesomeness and the miraculousness of God. And in a similar way on Mount Sinai, you know, when the Israelites have messed up and God says to them, listen, Moses, go tell these people, don't let them come up the mountain because if they do, they're going to die because I'm a holy God. And what they've done is something like really despicable. And therefore, when, you know, people that aren't perfect encounter the perfect God, it's not going to go well. And so you've got this interaction where God is saying, look, I am holy and I'm all powerful. And we get this kind of imagery. Yet at the same time, in the New Testament, we have the complete opposite imagery being introduced. While at the same time, God is holy, we also see like in a, 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 a verse in Romans where we'd call God Abba, which is daddy. And so God is inviting us to say and address him and talk to him as daddy. And that just makes us feel very uncomfortable because you're saying, wait a minute, this is the holy God that I can now approach and call daddy. I mean, it's like you can sit on Jesus' knee and call him Abba. But we've got to hold those two things in tension, the awesomeness, the powerfulness, yet the endearing love that God has for us and the ability for us to be able to approach him. At the same time, we know that God is a God that can be a God of judgment. And there's this fear that God will judge and does judge and uh, is a righteous judge. And lots of the reading in the Old Testament, you get the idea, okay, God is, judge, is going to be a judge. But at the same time, in tension, we know that God is love. He's not just loving. He 
is love. And so we have this mystery. We have this tension of trying to understand the fullness of God. And dare I say it, we'll never understand this in total. And breaching, you you know, you, you always feel like totally uh, inadequate because you're trying to describe an infinite God and you're trying to describe the, the incredible love that God has for us. You're also trying to describe the incredible holiness of God and how we should relate to Him and how God wants us to relate to Him. And, you know, this Christmas season, it, it, the birth of Christ, it just sort of comes together and it's like, wow, what is God all about? Well, it's just incredible. So we have it with, uh, with Jesus. You know, we see this progression in the Old Testament where God would be present in a, a movable tent called the tabernacle. And then, you know, wonderful leaders like David just saying, God, you're so holy. We, you know, we, I want to build you a temple, not just a little, you know, raggedy tent. And then God allows this temple to be built. And, and then we fast forward into the New Testament. And, and Jesus has this whole radical different idea and he says, wait a bit, I'm going to be so personal to you that you don't have to show up to church or show up to the temple. I'm going to make you, the people, the temple, and I'm going to live in you. And we go like, how is that even possible? And Jesus is saying, I'm going to make it possible. I'm going to make a way possible. I'm going to come into this earth as a human with the express and intent purpose of connecting with people, becoming relatable, and dying on a cross. It's not accidental. I'm intentionally coming, and I'm going to die on the cross so that I can be resurrected, and so that we will have access to the Father, and so that the Holy Spirit can live in us, and God can live in us, and we can experience the personalness and the love of God. And it's like, whoa. And then we have got all confused as we try and formulate our opinions of God and we try and put together the holiness and God's judgment and what he said in the Old Testament, what he said in the New Testament. And then there's this other crazy idea that Jesus is actually going to come twice. You know, he came at his, that we're celebrating now, his, his birth. But at the same time, we're anticipating that he's coming again. And it's like, Many of the prophecies and many of the expectations are only going to be fulfilled when he comes again. And so, you know, we just hold in intention. God, you just somebody totally other, and yet you're totally relatable, and you love us, and you desire to hang around and to be with us. Let me just pray. Jesus, I just pray that you'd reveal yourself to each one of us today. We just recognize that, Father, unless you draw us to you, unless you reveal yourself to us, you just seem foreign and distant. We can't imagine you. And if we do, we come up with the wrong idea of who you really are. So God, I just pray that you'd reveal yourself, that you'd reveal your Son, that you'd reveal your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I just invite your presence just to move in power, that each one of us can relate to you and experience you this morning and empower my preaching. Lord, I just pray that you'd fill your people this morning with a real sense of hope and, and peace and, and joy and surprise. I just lift up today, this season, in your name, Jesus. Amen. I would like to look at the, the birth of Jesus in the four Gospels. Obviously, I have to go pretty quickly through this because 
uh, we're not going to have time to study the birth of Jesus in all four Gospels. But I do want to say that uh, Jesus' birth was predicted in advance, and it was an anointed prophetic birth. And, you know, the, the predictions that are most well known would be that Jesus would be born of a virgin, uh, that Jesus would be born in a specific place, Bethlehem, and that Jesus would represent a leader, a king, greater than David. And the big idea there was that David was the greatest king that you could ever have imagined, and so can he be greater than David? And, you know, Jesus fulfills uh, all those uh, prophecies, and, they, and they're powerful prophecies. If we look at the, the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, the first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first Gospel uh, is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The book of Matthew is written to Jewish people. And what Matthew is trying to emphasize is all these prophetic things which have been said in the Old Testament. He's highlighting them to the Jewish people to say, Jesus is that. Those prophetic things, those prophetic voices that have been spoken by many, many different prophets, many, many different people over hundreds of years, Jesus is fulfilling all of those promises. And that's what Matthew is emphasizing, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so it starts off, as you well know, with the descendants, the ancestors of Jesus, going from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. And, and then in continuing chapter 1, you've got the birth of Jesus. Chapter 2 starts off with the visitors from the east, uh, the kings. And the story moves quite quickly where Jesus has to uh, escape being murdered and goes into, uh, into Egypt. And then he returns to Nazareth. And then in chapter 3, you've got John the Baptist who prepares the way and jumps then quickly into Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. And then if you look at the next gospel, the gospel of Mark, probably the gospel which is least being preached on today, Christmas Day, because there's not a whole lot being said about Jesus' birth. But what is being said is very interesting indeed. This is where the Gospel of Mark starts off. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Now, if you know anything about this Gospel, Mark is in a hurry. The Gospel is a short Gospel. It's the Gospel which moves the most rapidly. The Gospel of Mark uh, is one of those where he just gets to the point uh, really quickly. And uh, it's also, if you studied the Gospels, it's known as the Synoptic Gospels, meaning that Mark was the one that was written first, and then Matthew and Luke used a lot of the material from Mark and, and expanded on, on, on that material. But what Mark is getting at here is really interesting. He doesn't have any time for genealogies. Uh, he's not talking about the wise men. He's not talking about the angels and the shepherds. He feels that what you need to know, uh, as he says, it began just as the prophet Isaiah said. And for Mark, the beginning point is John the Baptist. And then he starts with two prophetic uh, utterances here. It says, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare the way. This is a, a prophetic uh, verse that was made with the prophet of Malachi, the, the last uh, prophet in our Bible before the New Testament. And then he adds to that Isaiah 40, verse 3. Now, what's interesting about this verse is it's in all four Gospels, which 
you kind of should bring us you know some attention and so god is is saying to us listen take note i made a promise and i really think that this is a big deal kind of a promise and this is a promise he is a voice shouting in the wilderness prepare the way for the lord's coming clear the road for him and so the gospel of mark is saying well the birth of jesus is all about john the baptist preparing the way for jesus and all the prophetic words that were given about john is to set up jesus ministry and then this gospel as i said it moves pretty quickly so you've no longer got uh, the the mention of the prophetic word of john the baptist talks a little bit about john the baptist and then it talks about uh, the baptism of jesus and we're still in the you know the middle of the first chapter and jesus is calling his first disciples and then he's casting out evil spirits and 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 jesus healing many people and he's preaching in galilee and he heals somebody of leprosy and that's only chapter one i mean like i said mark's in a hurry he's like got a point to make and covers a lot of ground and then we get luke and luke uh, is talking to a uh, greek audience and he's got a different setup he, he spends a lot of time talking about john the baptist's parents and he gives us great insight as to john the baptist's parents and uh, and then about to the jesus birth being foretold and then mary's prayer and song and uh, then we got the birth of john the baptist the birth of john the baptist and then zechariah's uh, prophecy and then the birth of jesus and jesus being presented in the temple the prophecy of simeon to jesus and the prophecy of anna and finally you get to chapter three and you got john the baptist as preparing the way but the gospel i want to just settle in on here for a moment is the gospel of john because this is just such a surprising gospel and for me what the gospel of john does with the birth story with with christmas is just incredible because it magnifies the greatness of jesus like exponentially i mean it's not only is he a royal leading king but he's like off the scale incredible king i mean if if the expectation was of david and somebody like a little bit better than david then you read the gospel of john it's like no it's like infinitely greater but at the same time if you think okay well jesus you know he was a baby he was born and you know virgin okay no his humility is like ramped up and it's like okay he's for us let me just read this and tell you what i'm what i'm trying to get at here it's a little tricky the first time you read this uh section because it's poetic language and so i'm always like okay do i go with the poetry and then you enjoy the poetry or do you go with the content which is you lose the poetry but you get the point uh, so I'm going to go with that. You can read the poetry on your own later, but let me read it to you. In the beginning, the word already existed. Now, when I say I'm going to lose the poetry, I want to uh, like take the mystery out of the poetry. The word is Jesus. Okay, so let me just, and it tells us that a few verses later on. So I'm not, you know, this is not an assumption. This is a given. Uh, so let me just read it this way. In the beginning, the word Jesus already existed. The word Jesus was with God. The word Jesus was God. He existed in the beginning with God. Now, hold on a second. This is the verse that drives everybody absolutely bonkers. If you're a Muslim, 
This drives you crazy. You know, do you know that the Quran acknowledges that Mary was a virgin and had a son called Jesus? I mean, just park there for a moment. Here we have a major religion that believes in this unbelievable miracle. I mean, there haven't been other virgins giving birth to people that we know of. I mean, we've known of like dead people coming back to life, but there's not a lot of stories about, okay, so-and-so, you know, is a person born of a virgin. No, even though the Muslims would agree that Mary was a virgin, they will not agree that Jesus is the king, the Messiah, the almighty one. And it doesn't matter if you're Jehovah's Witness, this verse drives them absolutely crazy. Or if you're a Mormon, this drives them absolutely crazy. Or if you're an atheist, this verse drives you absolutely crazy because of what is being said here. Look, in the beginning, Jesus already existed. Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. He existed in the beginning with God. Now, we looked at the genealogies in the Matthew and in Luke. And then we look at the genealogy in John, and it takes us all the way back to the first sentence in the Bible. I mean, it's, listen to this in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And John is saying, that's Jesus. Now, one of the misconceptions that we have is that somehow other Jesus is less than God the Father. You know, you've got God the Father, he's powerful, and Jesus, well, he's just the Son. And this is one of the, you know, the, the Jewish retorts. Like, why well, don't I need to pray to Jesus? I just got direct to the Father. I don't need Jesus. Well, unless Jesus is one with the Father. And let us not have that same misconception that somehow Jesus is inferior. Oh, no. We have images of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. We have plenty of images of Jesus being human. But then we have John, and he existed in the beginning, and nothing was created without him. Look at the power. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. Jesus gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And then it's straight into the story of John the Baptist. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell the light, so that the light, so everyone could believe in his testimony. John said, I'm not the light, it's Jesus. In verse 10, he came into the very world he created. Now, this is the humble part. This is the humility of God. But the world didn't recognize him. I mean, just think of that. You create the world, and the world says, oh, I don't believe in you. I don't even recognize you. I don't even care for you. He came into his, to his own people, and even they rejected him. The very people that knew all about him, that were going to anticipate him. But to all who believe in him and accept him, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he says, they are reborn, not with physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. You know, the interesting thing is God only has children. You don't get born as a Christian. God only has children, and he only has one generation of children. Uh, you don't have, like, grandchildren. You have to be a child of God, which means that each one of us has to receive God's invitation. And God is saying, do you want to be my child? That's the purpose. That's the reason why I was born. Do you want to be my child? And then we have the, the, the right to say, yes, I do, or no, I don't. I, and God is saying, but I am inviting you to be my child. 
I want to live in you. I want to direct you. I want to love you. I want to make your life really significant and meaningful and full of purpose and pleasure. Now, do you want that? And God is saying, but you need to believe in me. You need to believe that I am God, that I'm like fully God. And God says, well, if we will do that, he will come and live within us. And says here in verse 14, and so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. So we have to hold intention. This incredibly powerful, majestic, awesome God, and the same time that he is humble and that he's gentle and that he's promising unfailing love and faithfulness because that's who he is. And then uh, as I close, we see this, the life of Jesus and as Jesus' life uh, sort of comes to an end uh, through his, uh, his earthly ministry, uh, just as we saw in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus healing and delivering people, and his disciples are hanging out with him. And he gets to a point where his disciples have seen enough, experienced enough, and witnessed enough. And Jesus says this to them uh, in the middle of, of, well, it's in Matthew, it's in Mark, but I'm just picking up uh, this in Matthew. Jesus says, says to his disciple, particularly Peter, the main, you know, the person that knew the most about Jesus, that spent most time with him. But who do you say I am? You see, and this is the question that Jesus is asking you and he's asking me. Who do you say I am? And the thing that we have to wrestle with is, well, okay, he's, he's God, maybe. Or as Peter said, you know, emphatically, oh, you God. Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, here's the very interesting thing. Jesus' response to Peter's proclamation. He says this, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Just let that pause for a moment. Jesus is saying, We cannot know him unless God the Father gets involved in the equation and in our brain, and in our understanding, and reveals Jesus to him. Otherwise, you'll be like me as a 20-year-old, just saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, yeah, he's, he's God, but I'm going surfing. Now, that's a vast difference to saying, I believe in Jesus, he's the Son of God, and he resides within me, and he is holy, and I want to worship him, and I want to serve him, and I want to obey him, not because I have to, because I really, really want to, because he's just so awesome. Lord Jesus, I just uh, close as we just contemplate your birth and all that that meant in its fullness and its complexity. And yet, Lord, you did it because you love us and you're asking us, do we believe in you? Who do we say you are? Why did you come? Why do you love us? What do you mean you have a plan for us? What do you mean your life for us is better than the life that we can design for ourselves? Do we believe this? And Lord, you just challenge us. But Father, I just pray then what your mysterious way that you would help us to believe. You would help us to desire to live for you. You would help us. You would change us from within to realize that a life walked following you is the most desirable life that we can have. Instead of you trying to limit our lives, you give us abundant life. But we also acknowledge it's a mystery. In your name, Jesus. Amen.